0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious.
1: A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Gain culinary intelligence right here and right now and feed your insatiable appetite just by tuning in. Are you passionate about the process of cooking? Do you love discovering that perfect recipe, carefully selecting your ingredients, adding those special touches to make the meal uniquely your own? Well, you can elevate your passion just by staying tuned because we're making every day more delicious on this show sharing inspiration and extraordinary dishes. If you're hungry for beautiful food and remarkable wines and juicy conversation, well, then you won't want to miss this show. This is where the most passionate food and wine lovers live, And I have lots of additional inspiration at chefjamie.com, where I'm always serving up seconds. You'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show or would like to master a topic, you can find my podcasts with outlined show descriptions on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers, cookbook authors, and more are on this show. Living legends are too coming up. The extraordinary chef Francisco Magoya and the great Nathan Mirvold are at it again. Of modernist cuisine fame, the new four-volume series has just released on everyone's favorite food. That's pizza, of course. We're dishing on modernist pizza, the history, the culture. And oh, the cheese with Chef Francisco Magoya. You won't want to miss it. But first, I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, one that makes you the best cook you know. And I hope that it helps you to master your cooking skills or make you the best cook you know. I hope that it inspires you to cook with the season or very simply to get into the kitchen. Or to savor that next meal. And so allow me, if I may, to attempt to wax poetic about perfect pesto. I love pesto. It's bright and it's vibrant and it's a one-ingredient wonder that makes almost everything taste good. It adds liveliness to chicken salad. It makes penne taste fresh and light. It tops eggs excellently. I love it as a super simple marinade for flank steak or chicken breasts. It's also wonderful on polenta or alongside grilled vegetables. It makes a grand vinaigrette when you get to the bottom of the jar or container. And really my list goes on and on. And the tail end of summertime right now brings a bevy of bountiful basil in the garden and usually plentiful stalls of reasonably priced basil at the farmer's market. Now, you can buy decent pesto at the store, but it's one of the easiest sauces to make at home. Pesto requires very few ingredients, right? It comes together in less than three minutes flat. It's also very flexible. It invites you to play with the flavors and the textures to create your own perfect version. Now, the classic Italian pesto includes basil, pine nuts, garlic, olive oil, parmesan, and salt. But taste, in my opinion, should always surpass tradition. So I say, think of pesto as a jumping off point. If you have a really beautiful garden of herbs, make a mixed herb pesto and add some mint and maybe a little bit of fresh oregano or use basil and parsley as the base And then consider the garlic and its ability to overpower. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, When it comes to the nuts, um, pine nuts are traditional, but I say use whatever you have. Substitute walnuts or pistachios. Pistachios are my favorite. And you must toast the nuts, and then to amp up the pepperiness without your pepper grinder, you can use pecorino in place of Parmesan, or you could add a few leaves of arugula, which I happen to adore. And then there's always the acid. Lemon zest or juice is another common addition and one that I like um, for the freshness and the finish that it adds. But pesto is ripe for personal interpretation. So see what's growing in your garden and what's in your fridge and then mix to your heart's content. So I make pesto in a food processor because it's easier and faster and more consistent and more on that in a minute. As for storage, by the way, fresh pesto always tastes better, but you can make it ahead of time. And let me tell you how. So when it comes to mastering pesto, these are my top 10 tips. And they're all to keep in the back of your mind when you go to make a batch this afternoon. Number one, you want to wash the herbs very well. You don't want any bits of grit in your pesto, right? There's just too few ingredients to make it imperfect. Number two. You want to use cold water so that the herbs don't wilt and you want to dry them well in a salad spinner or between layers of kitchen towel so that we make sure to accentuate the herbaceousness without ever watering down those leaves. Now, number three, I don't particularly love a pesto that is pure basil. So as aforementioned... Cut it down a bit, add parsley to fill in the rest or another herb or a mix of herbs, because I do believe it makes for better pesto. Number four, think carefully about the garlic. There are often recipes that vary from one clove to three cloves, very garlicky pesto to milder or more balanced pesto. But I happen to love the subtlety of garlic So use roasted garlic or for a more subtle garlic punch, you could use garlic paste if you have some even better. Number five, whatever nuts you choose, you must toast them first. Just get out a small saute pan, add your nuts, medium low heat until you can smell them. That's enough to take off the rawness and it really does make the pesto better. Number six. Please choose an olive oil that you like the flavor of on its own. And if you're not sure, pour the olive oil onto a plate and sprinkle it with a little bit of salt and pepper and dip in some bread. And if you would happily eat that with dinner while glassing, uh, sipping on a glass of Pinot, then the answer is you've got a good olive oil. Number seven, please don't put everything in the food processor and just buzz buzz. It bruises the basil leaves, the nuts release too much oil, it gets kind of pasty, I could go on. Instead, I suggest that you combine the herbs, the nuts and the garlic and pulse pulse, no cheese by the way. Then you season salt, pepper and drizzle in the olive oil. Pesto is supposed to be a bit chunky by the way, not super smooth, let it be that way. Then stir in the Parmesan and you will have the most beautiful texture. Number eight, you don't have to use Parmesan if you don't want to, but I do like hard salty cheese and I love grana padano and I love pecorino romano, but you pick. Number nine, when you're going to store it, you want to spoon the pesto into an airtight container, could be a plastic container or a mason jar, and you want to cover the top with a thin layer of olive oil. This might be my best chef's tip. It will ensure that you retain that bright green, gorgeous color of the pesto. It also extends the shelf life by creating an airtight surface. Then put the cap or the lid on and store it in the fridge. Now, number 10, pesto freezes beautifully. So make a big batch to savor the end of summer. You can always go the ice cube tray route. If you have enough ice cube trays, you just fill the trays with pesto and you freeze. Or what I like to do is use the little snack bags, those little zipper bags that you use for your kids' lunches, like I do for my son. And I'll fill them with just enough pesto to let's say enrobe a half a pound of pasta And then I freeze the bags flat and I pull one out in the morning when I know I'm making pasta with pesto for dinner, or I want to season up some chicken breasts. And it thaws so quickly that way, but I always have it on hand. Okay. Now you are a pesto master. Do you feel like it? Well, I certainly hope so. If you'd like more pesto inspiration, I offer you my email address so that we can dish on pesto. Email me directly, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And stay tuned before the end of the hour, my last bite, as I like to call it it out. Uh, It's a two, three, four ingredient recipe, a super simple one that I leave you with every weekend. And it's a five ingredient chicken pesto soup because fall will come and you will want to use up your pesto. All right bigger than that. Please stay tuned. Grab a snack. Come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. This is your culinary playground. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Food is life. Create and savor yours. And oh, the big names, guests, and topics just keep getting bigger. I am always in awe of the work that Francisco Magoya and Nathan Mirvold do, and they are at it again. And I am over the moon to tell you that Francisco Magoya, the extraordinary chef, is back to grace this show. Using science and history to unlock the secrets of everyone's favorite food, pizza, of course, there is a new groundbreaking modernist set of beautiful volumes of research and recipes and glorious insight. The culmination of four years of travel, experiments, and collecting and advancing what their goal, of course, is always, your knowledge, and this specifically, the world's knowledge of pizza. Spanning 1,700 pages in three volumes with a recipe manual, Modernist Pizza has just released And it is an indispensable resource for anyone who not only loves to eat pizza, but is interested in diving deep into the science and the stories and the culture and the history. It chronicles deep dish to meet Neapolitan. It's a, a deep dive into the deliciously diverse world of pizza. And to better understand our beloved fixation, Chef Francisco Magoya is here to enlighten us. Of course, Chef leads the modernist cuisine culinary team and has been recognized as the top pastry chef and chocolatier in the U.S. and beyond, and the top chef on culinary science. I am very glad to have you back, Chef. Thank you for being here. How are you, Francisco?
2: I am very well. Thank you so much. That's a, a, a wonderful and really nice introduction. I really appreciate it.
1: No, and and well deserved and, and illustrious as it should be. Um, start at the beginning. Congratulations! You have a, another multi-volume modernist cuisine manual uh, in the books, literally, um, and it's extraordinary. I have to tell you, I'm reading page by page. I couldn't put it down. And it's compelling. It, it, I wonder, and I love your opinion, is that because we all are somehow strangely connected to pizza? Uh, I I love how you talk about that it is uh, multicultural, right? There There is some form of pizza in virtually every country in the world.
2: Yeah, I think it's safe to say that pizza is probably the most popular food in the world. Yes. I think... That what we found out was that in every country there's pizza. Uh, I think there's two countries where you can't find pizza in the entire planet. Really? Um, but yeah, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head what those countries are, but every country has pizza, and some countries have enough of a distinctive style of pizza that it makes it, it sets it apart from different, uh, all the different pizzas. So um, our effort was to be able to search out these pizzas and, you know, document them. And, you know, documenting means sometimes, actually most of the time it requires tasting, but also speaking to the people who make it. And uh, whether it's in Naples, where it came from, or in Tokyo, or in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or in Buenos Aires, or New York City, Hmm. wherever, uh, uh, you know, a distinctive style of pizza is made, we, we made sure to visit and learn as much as we could from it.
1: Yes. And so I loved the, the chronicles of your travel and of what we call research and development in the food world, right? But that is the best part, right? R&D, we, ha- we have to taste. Um, so start at the beginning. You visited how many pizzerias and dished with how many pizza legends to begin the research for the series?
2: In total, the number of pizzerias that we visited... Uh, were, you know, globally, 300 different pizzerias. Oh. Um, and, you know, within there, you know, a, a good, uh, uh, important, uh, you know, place to visit was obviously Naples, because that's the cradle of pizza. Yes. Um, we were fortunate to go to Italy three times in 2018, um, always touching base in Naples, but also going south, going north, you know, where there were other notorious pizzerias and pizzaiolos that were making uh, interesting pizza. Hmm. It was, uh, you know, a huge effort to make sure that we could speak to as many of them as possible. And, you know, it was very uh, pleasant to see that a lot of people did want to talk to us about how they make their pizza, sharing the information that they know. I mean, there were some places that were pretty secretive about, you know, how they, you know, their process and so forth, but obviously we respect that, Uh, but I would say most of the time we were able to speak to, you know, as as many people as possible. Even like the the most renowned uh pizza makers were happy to speak with us and so we mm. we were very fortunate to have that as part of our project.
1: No doubt. I mean to to dive so deep and get insight into those that have paved the way. I wonder what unexpected things you learned about pizza along the way.
2: You know, I think the there were some very interesting things. For example, I, you know, of course in the pizza itself, but more in what are like the traditions around eating pizza mm. uh, that, you know, are, that happen in different countries. For example, you know, in the United States, we're used to having our pizza come, you know, already sliced, right? You get six or eight slices. Where in Naples, that's out of the question. Your pizza arrives whole, and you cut it yourself. Right. Um, mostly because the implication is that it's, the pizza's just for you, but even when you get a pizza just for yourself here in the United States, it's already it's, somebody slices it for you. So it's those little traditions that that were interesting to learn about. In Sao Paulo, it's a actually a pretty upscale affair. It's it's something that you go to have for dinner only. Like people don't have pizza for lunch. Hmm. Uh, people will not eat pizza with their hands. It's always a fork and a knife. Um, and it's like the waiter serves you your slice. You know your pizza's on your table, but they you know very uh, you know service focused they will they will plate your pizza slice for you <laughs> um, and it 's extremely popular i mean it 's so popular in sao Paulo there's two thousand pizzerias in the city alone, so wow. uh, those traditions were what was very important, but also to see what happened with pizza after it left Naples and how you know it it what happened is people adapted it to what they had, what types of ovens they had, what type of ingredients they had Naples was very poor you know and and part of the reason why people left naples was to find a better life amongst other reasons and so when they found themselves in countries that there was an abundance of you know ingredients uh so the pizzas got bigger they got thicker they got more cheese on them you know Mm. and so it is sociologically and anthropologically um it's very interesting to see the progression of pizza and how people have adapted it to their realities
1: Yeah, very fascinating, actually. And I wonder if it's because there are so many variations, so many styles, so many uh, different personal preferences when it comes to pizza. I think making pizza for novices and connoisseurs can be very daunting.
2: Yeah, I I guess people are afraid to mess up and and the fear... What we've learned is that the biggest fear is, is getting the pizza into the oven huh. uh, and how how hard it is to get it, you know, cleanly off the peel without making a mess and it not like making a mess in your oven.
1: Chef Francisco Magoya of Modernist Cuisine and the new Modernist Pizza is here and there's more scintillating conversation in your radio right after this. We're back and we're dishing up pizza with Chef Francisco Magoya, culinary director at the helm of Modernist Cuisine. The extraordinary four-volume release of Modernist Pizza is available now. Well, I think that's the beauty of Modernist Cuisine is that you break it down so beautifully, deliberately that it feels doable, if I understand the science of it, if I am clear about what my end goal is, and this very much related to modernist bread for me, um, the, the prized collection I keep in my kitchen, if I know down to the crumb of what I'm looking for and understand how to make it, and that's the beauty of what you and Nathan and this glorious culinary team do, then I feel more empowered to attempt it. And I love that you've taken pizza as that approach. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you are late, but it's okay because Chef Francisco Magoya is here and we are celebrating the just released new Modernist Cuisine multi-volume series. I hate to call it a cookbook, Chef, because it's not that. It is so much more on Modernist Pizza. We are dishing, pun intended, about everything everyone loves about pizza. Uh, Okay, we talk about it being daunting. I think the dough is the greatest challenge for me personally when I think of pizza and great cooks alike. So uh, talk to us. Let's take a big bite. Uh, Water, the mixer, the... uh, I mean, all the good stuff. Can you give us some some secrets, some insight, please?
2: Yeah, I think that the baby steps are going to be very important because Mm. there's many different kinds of dough. Uh, The biggest variation you're going to have from one dough to another is going to be the amount of water that goes in it, Um, you know, fermentation time and so forth. But mostly we're talking about, like, how much water goes into a dough. So doughs that are wetter, like for Altago, the Roman-style pizzas, or, uh, you know, focaccias that are very wet doughs. Those are harder to handle. So if I was just starting to make pizza, I would recommend people start with easier doughs. For example, the, pe- the pizza I, I always point newbies towards is our thin crust pizza. Yes. Because it's a dough that is, is not super wet. It's a dough that it's easy to mix. It mixes very quickly. Basically, it's, you mix it in your mixer. And that's, that is kind of important. I mean, you could mix it also in a food processor, and it works pretty well um but mixing by hand is where some people might find that more challenging and we don't recommend mixing by hand especially if you're new at it uh mostly because it can it can be you know you can make a mess really quickly but it it takes a long time Mm -hmm. and you might lose patience and not mix your dough right Mm -hmm. where a machine will get the job done in 10 minutes um and important to realize when when is your dough ready when it has what we call full gluten development Uh, or a a fully developed dough, which means that the structure the gluten, what makes your dough stretchy, has fully developed during mixing, and you're able to stretch it enough to perform what's called a windowpane test. What this is, is you stretch the dough very thinly, it doesn't tear, and you can see light through it. Uh, That's how you can tell that your gluten has fully developed. So once you have a dough that has that strength, it's typically going to be a very good pizza dough. And so, uh, you know knowing visually what the pizza the dough is supposed to look like after mixing is very important so we give people all that the visual cues as well to look for Hmm. um but also you know letting it rest letting it ferment and giving the dough time to become this very delicious uh, baked product is is part of the equation Uh, yes because ingredients aren't very expensive what is most expensive is your time so patience is Kind of important in Hmm. that in that whole equation. Is key. Um, Yeah, and you know what I really like to recommend for people uh, who are baking at home. Most home ovens aren't that great. They're they're intended to make for multi purposes. Uh, Unfortunately, none of those are done well. It doesn't do anything specifically well. So you have to hack your oven a little bit to make it you know work for you know your different purposes. But for pizza. There's a wonderful piece of equipment that I recommend. That's called a baking steel, and it's basically a, a three-eighths of an inch thick, you know, metal slab uh, that you put in your oven. In fact, I have one in my oven at home. I just leave it in there all the time. But what it's going to do is it's going to be able to give me a really crispy crust. It's mm-hmm. going to be able to bake my pizza. Much better than if I baked it on a baking stone or a sheet pan. Hmm. Uh, very similar in in style to what you would get at a pizzeria. Um, and in your home oven, it's it's important to have that sort of like heat going right into your pizza dough. Yes. Whereas if you don't have a uh, that baking steel, you're going to have maybe a flabby dough with a soft bottom crust. And so baking steel is really a good investment to make
1: for Fabulous. making
2: good pizza at home.
1: Okay, so the steel is the new uh, pizza stone. And yes, and when you talk about dough, um, I was delighted to see a recipe shared on the internet. There there are so many different styles, one of which is uh, for those who are impatient like me um, and who don't want to wait. And I, I would love if you would just speak to The ingredients that go into a pizza dough vary uh, quite often, based on your hundreds of recipes. This one is water, dry yeast, high-gluten bread flour, and malt powder. The science behind malt powder,
2: please. So, malt powder is going to give us a little bit more browning. What we're doing is we're giving the... Mm. the dough a little bit more sugars to caramelize during the baking process. or we're going to get what the French would call bien cuit, or oui. well-done in, in, in English, I suppose.
1: Yes.
2: Uh, the best translation. So it gives us that deeper, like, mahogany brown crust. Uh, it also gives us a little bit more crispiness in the dough. So um, it's little ingredients like that that help with, you know, making a good pizza. Adding a little bit of oil, too, and I mean, like, really, uh, like, a small amount of oil really helps doughs, especially in home-oven situations. Um, it, it, it gives you the impression of it being a little bit moister, but also a little bit more crispiness. It makes it so that slices reheat a lot better. Doughs that are made without oil don't reheat very well. So if you have any leftover pizza, hmm. it doesn't, it's not as good. Uh, And of course, salt. I mean, salt is going to be a very important component, so we always recommend that you use fine table salt or kosher salt, you know, small crystal salt so that it can disperse and dissolve easily in your dough. Um, Interesting. The water, you know, a lot of people talk about water as uh, incorrectly as as water being like this magical, you know, elixir that has to be from a specific place in the world to make good pizza, and the truth is that you just need water that is if it's water that you would drink, meaning no aroma, no color, it's not slimy, if it's water that you would drink, it's perfectly fine for making pizza. So, um, you know, just make sure that if, if you have, you know, well water that is properly filtered. But, you know, water is, 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 is an important ingredient, of course, but it doesn't have to come from, you know, the edges of Mount Vesuvius for <laughs> you to be able to make the pizza.
1: You just or ch- New York City. I whatever. was going to say, you just changed the bagel world for the good. Yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. Oh, for sure. Um, okay. Um, this is the big question cheese or sauce first?
2: Okay. So I would say that it really depends on the style that you're doing. But for example, for a very classic, traditional, straightforward Neapolitan, always sauce first and cheese on top. Yes. Um, and for most like New York style pizzas, you will do sauce on the bottom and cheese on top. But one of my favorite pizzerias is, uh, it's in Portland, and the, the, its name is Pizza Schultz.
1: This is another exceptional body of work. Congratulations and kudos to you. I am ever in awe of your dedication to the culinary field, to your years of research that go into volumes of intelligence and insight and passion. And I will embrace modernist pizza as I have your other beautiful volumes. So, uh, kudos to you and to Nathan for uh, ever teaching us. Thank you. Um, truly a, a deeper love of food. Thank you. Thank you. Modernist pizza places the latest scientific research, state of the art applications, uh, and recipes into the hands of everyone searching for answers about beloved pizza. It is 35 pounds in four volumes. It is the largest, most comprehensive book ever written about our love for pizza. And it will change the way you think and cook from the ground up. At the helm, Chef Francisco Megoya, with more brilliant things to come from Modernist Cuisine. You can learn more. The Modernist Pizza series is available now. Uh, for order on Amazon or go to modernistcuisine.com and please follow Francisco for glorious culinary insight at F. Migoya, F is in Francisco, M-I-G-O-Y-A. Uh, thank you for gracing this show once again, Chef. It is my my pleasure and my honor to have you here sharing your passion.
2: Chef, thank you very much. Thank it's you. A pleasure as thank always. You, thank, thank you,
1: thank you. Can't wait to have you back. Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. We'll be right back. There's delicious conversation right now in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Danielle Oron, the founder of the much-beloved blog, I Will Not Eat Oysters, and the now-famous recipe that took the internet by storm, her salted tahini chocolate chip cookies has a new cookbook out, and I can't wait to sink my teeth into it, literally. And I am delighted that Danielle Oron is here to dish. I'm glad to have you. Hi, Danielle. Hey, how are you doing? (laughs) Doing great. Thank you. Congratulations. The book is truly luscious. I mean, I, I wanted to lick every page. And dish after dish, I mean, I can't wait to cook from it. You were a restaurant chef and a bakery owner. Now you cook at home, you test recipes for mega food sites, you have a very successful blog, and I find it fascinating that you're all about keeping the meals interesting, but you are not about fuss.
0: No, not at all. No. I, mean, I used to make my own aioli. I used to make huge birthday cakes, but <laughs> you know, after starting a family, I realized that there's a lot more important things in life, and yes. simplifying my food life feels a lot better to me now than it did a few years back.
1: Which I love because I think you've kept that level of not professionalism per se, but the elevation of great food at home. And you're making it super simple. I mean, it's easy. Um, Let's cook because as I said, reading your book made me hungry. Let's start with breakfast. You definitely elevate scrambled eggs.
0: Yes. And I mean, Everyone makes scrambled eggs. It's like that easy go-to thing in the morning. It's protein-filled, but it could just get so boring. Like, how much scrambled eggs with toast can you have? True. So I found that adding just a little bit of um, spice and a little bit of different, maybe like fresh tomatoes, and tossing it together just gives the scrambled eggs a whole new life that, you know, Elevates them, and you really don't need to buy anything extra. I open up my fridge, I find my onions, there's some cherry tomatoes, chop those up, make the scrambled eggs. While that butter and oil is kind of melting in the pan, you add the spices to bloom them.
1: Yes. And then you just
0: make like a little saute of vegetables, add the eggs, and it's done. And it's delicious, and fast, and easy.
1: And it, you know, wakes you up. You are all about your spice cabinet. And we know that, you know, you have a passion for tahini, but we'll get to that. You're all about turmeric and those really bold, I would say, uh, big flavors. And a little goes a long way there. But there is a a wake-up factor to them. What else do you you go to? What do you reach for?
0: Believe it or not, I reach for curry powder a lot, Mm. (laughs) which is something I learned from my dad, um... It's just that mixture of spices that it's a little spicy, a little warm, a little, just a little bit of everything that wakes it up. So curry, turmeric, paprika, cumin, those are definitely all my
1: go-tos. Yeah, I I love all that big, bold flavor. Um, Okay, I'm moving on from breakfast. I alluded to your mac and cheese it has two ingredients. And like you, I am a Borsan fan.
0: It's a genius ingredient. It is. So many different things. And I have loved it since being a child. Um, I've loved the herb one. And my personal favorite is the one I use in this mac and cheese is the pepper borsan. I think it's just so bold and delicious and creamy that it's just it really does lend itself to a mac and cheese that's almost like a cacio e pepe, mm. but um, just it's it's my favorite. Boursin is hands down the best cheese out there, and you can hate me for it or not, but
1: no, that's no, the way I feel, no, there's there's no hate here, all love. Because I will tell you, you can keep Boursin, the one ingredient wonder, in your fridge and make a multitude of things that to me impress. So the pepper borsan is your thing. The herb and garlic is mine. And I make a two-ingredient cream spinach using frozen chopped spinach, squeezed very, very dry, and that garlic herb borsan. And you could spread it on toast and top it with anything. And it is genius. It has that bold flavor like you talk about. And texturally, it's the mouthfeel that there's no duplicate for.
0: And it's great cold with crackers, and it melts. So, so beautiful.
1: Beautifully. You simply boil cavatappi, which I love cavatappi. It seems to really take sauce well. And you mix in the pepper borsan and dinner's ready.
0: Yes. And all you have to do is just keep some of that pasta water like you would with any pasta and just keep going, mixing and tossing the pasta, adding a little bit more of the water at a time until you get that really creamy, rich sauce. So it really is a two-ingredient dish and my favorite and I've made it over and over and over again
1: I think it's brilliant this is food you love but different the title of Danielle Oran's elevated everyday recipes it is luscious so please check it out available for order right now on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere you can learn more and follow and be inspired on Danielle's blog at I will not eat oysters and on her social media tag at that same name, the salted tahini chocolate chip cookie that you must make is also on the blog as well. Danielle, a pleasure. Please come back soon. I'd love to have you. Will do. And so that brings us to the end of an hour. Oh, such a good hour of delicious conversation, fabulous food, gastronomic inspiration, and legends. And I certainly hope that you heard music to your ears, I should say. Uh, I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary inspiration, food loving banter for this weekend. But I'll thank you first for listening. I hope you'll tune in every weekend uh, as I celebrate food in your radio. Here is my last bite. The recipe that I post on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen with uh, the measurements, ingredients, and everything you need to make. Five ingredient chicken pesto soup for this week. It's actually five simple ingredients. If you have chicken thighs, preferably bone-in chicken in your fridge or freezer, and some chicken broth or stock, and maybe some spinach leaves or arugula, and half a cup of that pesto you made from the garden that you swirl in at the end for that cheesy, herby, vibrant green punch, this is a beautiful hearty soup once the fall comes, and I know you're going to love it. I'm posting my five ingredient chicken pesto soup once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I hope you'll become a friend and a fan. And I will meet you here next weekend when I do guarantee there is lots more to sink your teeth into in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.